0: You can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. If we were in the Old Testament and we started learning about the story of Exodus, you quickly find in chapter 1 that there is a new Pharaoh in town. The Pharaoh from Genesis that was friends with Joseph is no longer So Joseph had tons of favor favor. with that Pharaoh. He becomes kind of the vice president, second in command. All of Israel's moving down to Egypt to escape famine, and things are going pretty well for Israel. But then there's a new Pharaoh in town, and with that new Pharaoh comes persecution upon the Israelites, the killing of their babies, the enslavement of the people. And God comes with opposition as the children of God cry out. God comes with judgment. God comes with plagues to both rescue his people and harden the hearts of his enemies. So, as we study Revelation 8 and 9 today, we get similar vibes to the early Exodus account. God's people are opposed, and God is coming with his opposition and judgment and plagues much like the seven trumpets then later blown around the walls of Jericho we begin to hear these seven trumpets of God's judgment upon all who op- oppose him and oppose his people and we find much like with pharaoh get this the hardened hearts get harder the hardened hearts get harder that's a that's a major portion of understanding revelation 8 and 9. So look at Revelation 8. We covered to verse 5 last week. We're starting at verse 6 today, and we're going to read the rest of Revelation 8. We will cover all of 9 today, but we're going to skip over to verse 20 and 21 just to kind of show you the hardening that's going on. Let's start with chapter 8, verse 6. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed Hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed." The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers on the springs of water. The name of the star is woodworm or wormwood, sorry, wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Verse twelve. A fourth angel blew with tr- uh, his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets, that the three angels are about to blow. Skip with me to verse 20 of chapter 9. The rest of the mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear, or walk, nor did they repent of their murders and their sorceries and their sexual immorality or their theft. May God bless the preaching and reading of his word. And just a warning today, got two points mainly from this. The first point is basically the entire sermon, and the second point is application. So 35 minutes from now, when I'm still on point one, don't get freaked out, okay? All right, point number one is this. God responds to the prayers of the saints, the six trumpets of judgment on the wicked. Now, there are seven trumpets, but just like the seals, there's the sixth, then a a pause in the narrative, and the seventh comes back. We'll hit the same way with the seven trumpets. So seals and trumpets and uh, bowls, we'll see lots of parallels. I'll talk about that in a second. Now, as we remember Um, these trumpets began with the prayers of the saints. We saw in chapter six, seal number five was the saints under the altar praying to God to do something, do something about this persecution and opposition that's coming upon God's people. Much like the Israelites in Egypt crying out to God, crying out to Yahweh with prayers and groanings, we've got similar things going on in these chapters. Chapter eight, verse four We find that the prayers of the saints rose up before God, and then the fire is poured out. Then the trumpets are introduced of God's judgment. And as we enter this study of the trumpets, we've got to remember two things about um, apocalyptic literature. This is not the normal thinking or what we probably normally read on a daily basis. So number one with apocalyptic literature, what is said is often not literal, but symbolic. So we've got to read the whole Bibles to then understand what's going on. If it's referencing, if what we're reading in Revelation is referenced in other places of the Bible, that's going to be massively important. And number two, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Looked at the seals over the last two Revelation sermons. Today we're going to be talking about the trumpets. In the future we'll be talking about the bowls. They're showing the same events but from different camera angles. The big word we talked about last week is recapitulation. Recapitulation. We find like the gold line stand at the football game you watch where did the ball get over the line or not? And They show this angle and that angle and this angle to see. We see different angles of similar things within the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. So we find in the trumpets many of the threads that we saw in the seals. What's interesting, as we get to the bowls, it's almost verbatim of, of trumpet number one, bowl number one, trumpet number two, bowl number two, like that. It's, it goes almost verbatim with the bowls. But there's an intensification as you go. Things heat up. Even as we get into uh, chapter nine today, you are going to feel the intensification of what is going on. We find similar patterns like seals one through four grouped together, trumpets one through four are grouped together. These are the actions and judgments that take place throughout the church age. These are the judgments that each generation endures. And as Josh said a few weeks ago, these judgments are are for the punishment of unbelievers and for the refinement of believers. We will also see the seals, trumpets, and bowls that each end with final judgment. And we know there's not three final judgments. And actually throughout Revelation, you see the final judgment pictured even other times beyond these three different moments of the seals, trumpets, and bowls. So if you're not thoroughly confused right now, stay with me, I'll help you, I hope. So the seals, trumpets, and bowls are called the judgment cycles, each with a different emphasis, each with a different camera angle. The seals have the camera angle of believers. They're looking at how believers are handling the trials they face. The trumpets that we're going to be looking at today are focusing on unbelievers. It's focusing primarily on unbelievers and then how creation kind of... uh, devolves as uh, and is undone in the world. And the bowls are a bit more direct, shorter accounts, restating the trumpets, but really an emphasis on the final judgment, which as you get further in Revelation, the final judgment is a lingering thing that the author wants us to focus on. So let's look at these trumpets in chapter 8 and 9. We must note the link of the plagues of Egypt like I talked about earlier. In Exodus, these four trumpets have similarities. So G.K. Beale, a scholar, says the lens, the glasses we've got to put on as we're looking at these trumpets is the Exodus account. Trumpet number one, hail and fire. It may not be literal, but speak of the destruction of crops, food shortage, famine, just like seal number three in Revelation six, Trumpet number two speaks of a great mountain thrown into the sea. Now, we must note that Mount Vesuvius erupted about 20 years prior to the writing of Revelation, so the original audience would have known about Pompeii's destruction, a mountain exploding, sky darkened, 16,000 people dead. This is a vivid account. But most scholars, most commentaries note that in Revelation, mountains often speak of kingdoms or nations or governments. So it seems like there's a judgment on governments with this backdrop of Vesuvius in mind of like, this is the powerful destruction that will be coming, that happens. Beale says this, hence, this picture speaks of judgments against evil kingdoms. And we see similar language in Jeremiah 51 25. It says, Babylon is a destroying mountain which will be burned with fire. So as Babylon is judged, it affects the sea trade of the ships. It affects the waters. And what we'll see when we start studying Revelation 18 is Babylon is going down. You even have the kings and you have the merchants all weeping because Babylon's destruction. What we see is Babylon is the city of man. Babylon is the worldly destruction. Babylon is the worldly systems that happen, that we live in. Babylon is judged. Trumpet number three speaks of a judgment on the fresh waters, the springs, the rivers. There's a bitterness to, to the waters. Remember, John is painting with a palette of the Old Testament. You've heard me say that over and over and over. So, we have a painter, we have some artists in here. You have your palette, you're using the color and you're painting with the colors that are on your palette. Well, here the there's a painting and he's using John's using Jeremiah chapter 9 and Jeremiah chapter 23 where God gives his disobedient people wormwood. It's a bitter herb. It's, it's the people having this bitterness of the water, polluted like the water. The people in Jeremiah are polluted like the water and it's a graphic image, kind of like the Laodicean church that spit out of the mouth of Jesus. These evil people are rebelling against God. But chapter 10 speaks of a star that's falling and commentators think that this star could be an angel. We don't really know. The, in chapter nine, we're gonna see another star falling that probably represents Satan. But most think this star represents a person who harms, a person who brings bitterness to life. Might this be the historic leaders of each age who destroy people for their own gain? The Attila the Hun, the Genghis Khan, the Bloody Mary, the Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Idi Amin. Like Pharaoh, evil, hardened rulers ultimately carrying out God's plans, but bringing lots of bitterness to the life of other people. Honestly, we aren't fully sure. We aren't fully sure, what the, is this an angel or a person? What, but there's a bitterness going on to life through for, through Trumpet 3. And then Trumpet 4 speaks of judgment with the sun, moon, and stars. Be able encourage us to see the plague of darkness here. This has happened before. This is darkness like Egypt. And Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15 speaks of judgment this way. This is actually part of how Jeremiah defines judgment as the sun setting while it was still day. There's a setting, and it seems this could be metaphorical, darkness that reminds us of idolatry, of evil, of the vanity of idolatry. So here's a summary of the four trumpets. Are you hanging with me so far? Good. Good job. This, normally he can actually see ahead, but with the computer right now, he's just like hoping it comes up with every push of the button. You're doing great, Nathan. All right. The first four trumpets can be summarized this way. Food shortages throughout history, judgment on governments throughout history, bitter leaders who plague people throughout history, and the darkness in creation that shows the darkened hearts." These judgments are ungodly, but we've got to have one really important note here. These judgments are partial. You see throughout chapter 8, a third, a third, a third, a third, a third. Final judgment is not yet. These are partial. What does that mean? There is time for the unbeliever to repent. There is time to turn from idolatry, from thinking that governments or leaders or riches or comforts will save someone. And let me just say, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this passage pleads with you to repent. You will find times in your life where you are outside of your own capabilities. There is a need that you cannot meet. You will fear. You might fear in the storm, in the hurricane, in the natural disaster, in the economic uncertainty, in comforts that are lost, in wars or rumors of wars, or the death of a loved one. And all of these are calling you to turn away from idols and turn to the Creator. Turn to Christ and find your satisfaction only in Christ. See your need of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So partial judgment, smaller pains, little struggles are a wake-up call. Or as C.S. Lewis put it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Heed the shout to turn from your sins and trust Jesus as the only way of salvation. Trumpets one through four are a shout for unbelievers to repent. They are a shout. They're also punishment. They're punishment for idolatry and they're punishment for the persecution of believers. Remember, God is answering the prayers of believers through these judgments. We also find a type of decreation in judgment or in trumpets one through four that pushes us to long for a new creation. These are effects on earth and judgments and governments and leaders, but they are purposeful. They have meaning. We must find meaning, God's divine purpose here. G.K. Beale puts it this way it should be on the screen. It says, Many Christians think the events that happen in history are theologically or spiritually neutral, but in fact, Revelation says that they have divine purposes attached to them which are relevant for unbelievers and believers. How one responds to such events is one indication of whether or not a person has a genuine saving relationship with God. So natural or man-made disasters are not neutral. So the hurricane, the earthquake, the infectious disease, and the war are not neutral. They're to sober nonbelievers to see that their idols do not save, and they're to refine believers to make us long for the new creation. And we've got to note this with this text. The unbeliever will either be softened or hardened in these moments. They will either be softened or they will be hardened in these moments. Now, Revelation 8, verse 13, is then a shift in our passage. It says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now, as we've discussed, many different times in the Bible, the way you emphasize things as you repeat it. God isn't just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. So when it's saying, whoa, 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 it's like, man, this is, this is gonna be bad. The, the, the intensity gets ramped up and that's what this eagle is saying. These are harsher than the first four, more devastating than the first four, where trumpets one through four seem to affect human life as a whole, The destruction of creation, the government systems, trumpets five through seven, these woes, if you will, are a direct attack on unbelievers. So look at verse one of chapter nine. We're going to read for a little bit. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth Prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and uh, the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails." They have as king over them an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he's called Apollyon. Verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. The intensity ramps up. Greg Beale says it this way, kind of summarizing this section. Demons are commissioned to torment hardened unbelievers by further impoverishing their souls and reminding them of their hopeless spiritual plight. Chapter 9, verse 1 speaks of a star that falls. It seems to be the story of Satan. So in Isaiah 14 and Luke chapter 10, we find the fall of Lucifer from heaven to earth. The scattering of demons on earth in Luke 10, 18. I was watching Satan fall like lightning, Jesus says. This is our history on earth, and this is the king in 9, verse 11, who fell. Abaddon, Apollyon, Satan. Same dark angel. Verse 2 then speaks of the key to the bottomless pit, which is the authority that Satan had. Get that. The authority Satan had. We read in Revelation 1 verse 18 that those same keys are now in Jesus's hands. After his death and resurrection, all authority is his. Christ now has authority on earth that Satan used to have. Verse 3 then speaks of the locusts, and notice that it says the locusts are given power. Now, most commentators think these locusts are demons coming from the pit, these fallen angels who roam the earth and desire nothing more than to steal and kill and destroy those made in God's image. But notice their power. The text says it is a given power. This is not a power that they have. This is a power that is borrowed. God gives and he allows this power. Just like the locust insects that serve God's purposes in Egypt, these locust demons serve God's purposes on earth in the trumpets. But verse four is interesting because the power is also limited. These demons don't hurt creation or much of it. Plants and trees are guarded from them. That's what locusts usually do. Like a plague of locusts is hurting all the crops. Everything that's green, these locusts are very different than that. So they don't destroy the crops. They also can't touch those who quote, are sealed, have the seal of God on their foreheads, unquote. So they cannot touch believers. This is another camera angle of what we saw in chapter seven of the 144,000 who are sealed. God's seals of of spiritual protection, of, of God's ownership of the Holy Spirit on believers. They cannot be touched. And just as the blood over the doorway protected the children of Israel at the first Passover, so the blood of Jesus seals and protects the children of God. But we've got to note something. There are some theological streams that would say of the end times like believers are gone at this moment. But what we notice is the believers are there. They just can't be touched. Believers are around, it's just they have the seal on them and they cannot be affected by these demons. Verse five then speaks of five months of torments by the demons on the unbelievers. These five months note a limited time period. The locusts can't kill, they can only torment. And that word torment speaks of spiritual and psychological warfare. These demons torment people whispering lies, deception, doubts, fears, lusts, envies, regrets. It is awful warfare where they want to die but cannot. Dennis Johnson notes that there's a tragic irony of unbelievers here. Verse 20 and 21 speak of them worshiping demons, and yet it is satanic demons who torment them and turn on them. Johnson says it this way The devil rewards his loyal subjects with cruel torture. The devil rewards his loyal subjects with cruel torture. This is what the serpent always does. He did it to Eve. It happens throughout history, it happens today. That which seems like it might be good gets turned on the person and they go to deeper, darker places than they ever thought possible. The locust always stings. And this will happen until the final judgment. Demons always turn. Verse seven through 12 then give us some more descriptions of these demons. Now we must remember again, with our analogy that John paints with the paint palette of what? The Old Testament. That's super important for us to understand as we talk about Revelation. So what are the texts that John pulls from in the description of these demons, with these description of the locusts? He paints with the book of Exodus, and he paints with the book of Joel. And remember that in Revelation, it speaks figuratively, so words, when it uses the word like, it's it's they are like horses prepared for battle, they're like lions' teeth. We've got to remember you've got to assume figurative, not literal with um, apocalyptic literature. And we've got to let other texts feed into the interpretation. So Exodus speaks of actual locusts as the plagues of Egypt. But then if you go over to Joel, Joel actually pulls on Exodus, but speaks figuratively of locusts. That's part of God's judgment. Joel chapter 1 says that, that judgment will come like locusts coming to destroy. Joel chapter 2, this will be on the screen. This is Joel 2, 4 through 6. Now listen to Joel 2, 4 through 6 in light of what we just read in Revelation 9. It's talking about the locusts, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Revelation pulls on the Old Testament imagery of Joel. So we've got a lesson here for us on a word called hermeneutics. It's the idea of how do we read and interpret the Bible? Because many modern books, movies, and even pastors will read about the locusts and think helicopter. But let me just say, that's the wrong instinct. Here's a quote by G.K. Beale. To have the first instinct go from John's time to modern warfare that this is helicopters is the wrong instinct. We've seen over and over that John is pulling from the Old Testament. We should go from the book of Joel where locusts are battling, bringing judgment, and have the faces like men, and think about Joel not go to Apache helicopters. We've got to do that when we read the Bible, and that's not just for Revelation. If you're picking up your Bible in the morning and you're reading the Bible and it's like, You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay, I'm gonna jump off my roof and fly. You're an idiot and you're probably have a lot of broken bones. We don't go from the Bible to modern day. What was Paul talking about when he said that? He was talking about contentment. I can be in hunger or I can be full. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content. It doesn't mean I can make free throws. I love Steph Curry. It's the wrong context, man. Like it's it's just, we've got to understand this with hermeneutics. Biblical interpretation matters. Whereas my New Testament professor said, do not take the text kicking and screaming out of context. We've got to care about what the original author wrote, and why he wrote it, and what the original readers were getting from it. That's going to be super important as we study Revelation, but it's super important as you study any part of your Bibles. So what we find in trumpet number five is that God is using Satan and satanic influence to punish unbelievers. Let's then transition to trumpet number six. Look at verse 13. You'll notice this intensifies even more. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpets, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's 200 million. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates and color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur and their heads of the horses were like lion's heads. The fire and the smoke and the sulfur came out of their mouths. But these three plagues, a third, sorry, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Verse 19, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. So, trumpet number six ends what is called the period of restraint. Final judgment is near. Dennis Johnson says it this way, this trumpet portrays visually the release of pent up demonic venom on earth. Verse 14 speaks of bound angels at the Euphrates. These are most likely not the angels we would want to encounter at some point. These are most likely demons, bound against their will, bound by God, and now released at a specific time that God set apart. And they're set apart to kill a third of mankind. Now, the Euphrates represents something, the sources of oppression and exile. If you read in the Old Testament, that's the Assyrian Empire and even Babylonian Empire are connected to the Euphrates. And then just note the enormity of the demonic opponents. 10,000 times 10,200 million. Biblical language, myriads, double a myriad of myriads. This is a huge number. And the way we've seen revelation with numbers, like this is massive. This should rattle us. This is jaw-dropping numbers when you think about other numbers that have been given and how massive those numbers actually probably symbolize. Judgment comes from these demonic creatures warring against humanity. Fire and smoke and sulfur, or some say brimstone. This is like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 19 says the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tales some think that that mouth speaking of the demonic deception and seduction as we continue to study in revelation you'll see deception and seduction of satan all over the place and lethal tales possibly speaking of persecution so so revelation when it's speaking to believers it's talking a lot about seduction and a lot about persecution You are going to face seduction, or you are going to face persecution, or you are going to face both. This is really bad. This intensifies. But we want to ask why. Why is all this happening? What is God's purpose in it? And how does it apply to us today? Point number two is this. The purpose and application. We must remember the lens of the Old Testament that we need to have as we read Revelation 8 and 9, specifically the Egyptian plagues. At the end of chapter 9, it's interesting. These trumpets are not even just called woes anymore. They're actually called plagues. In verse 18 and verse 20 and 21, they're called plagues. They're supposed to draw our image, draw our gaze back to the plagues of the Old Testament. We get a key to understanding this passage in verse 20 and 21. Look at that with me. The rest of mankind who were not killed. So just picture this. I mean, this this passage, when I was studying this a few weeks ago, these these messages, by the way, take way longer than like normal messages. because I don't know if you felt this, but as I read, I was like, what the heck does that mean? So just trying to dive into people who are way smarter than me. So as I was reading 20 and 21, after reading about the Millions and millions of demons or whatever's going on, they're locusts, and they're coming at people, and they're killing people, and all this is going on. And then you read 20 and 21, and you're like, what? 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 Look at 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons. And idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their theft. So humanity goes through four trumpets of creation being undone, governments oppressed the normal course of history. But then trumpet five, everything ramps up. Demonic torment comes, but people want to die, but they can't die. Then trumpet six comes and people are starting to die, getting killed by a massive amount of demonic forces. And what do the people do? They start worshiping the demonic forces. They worship demons. They devote themselves even more to their idolatry, their rebellion, their murder, their sorceries, their perversion. The plagues are to call them to repent and yet they rebel, they lock in. Dennis Johnson says this, these six warning notes, the trumpets, fall on deaf ears. So what's the purpose? Application number one, the hardening of unbelievers. Just like in Exodus, there's a hardening of Pharaoh. We must understand that God uses painful circumstances to harden non-believers. There's a hardening here. You just feel it as you read 20 and 21 in context. Closely tied to the hardening, though, is also revealing what humanity truly trusts and what humanity truly worships. It seems that the partial judgments of Trumpets 1 through 4 still giving this window of repentance to non-believers in this church age and this day start to close as Trumpets 5 and 6 come in the future. Non-believers like Pharaoh getting harder against God, locking in, clenched jaws, digging in, hardened heart. So application number one, the hardening of unbelievers. Application number two, Exposing idolatry, and I would add this, exposing idolatry as demonic. Exposing idolatry as demonic. Obviously, this exposes the idolatry of non-believers, the text does, but we must consider any and all temptations that we have to align with Satan more than Christ's. It would be wise for us, as we read this text, to consider our idolatry is equally demonic. Any loyalty we have to anything other than Christ is equally demonic. It may be we worship our independence, our freedom, our country. We can worship guns and the right to bear arms. We can worship safety. We can worship comfort. We can worship materialism. We can worship plans. We can worship agendas. We can worship kids. We can worship grades. We can worship their future. If we're the student, we can worship our performance, our academic success. We can worship sports, jobs, security and having jobs. We worship ourselves, our image, our reputation. But we've got to ask this, do we view all false worship as demonic? It's evil. It's running from Christ. It's why Christ had to die. Do we run to repentance, to the cross where Christ died for that sin too, that idolatry too, and say, Lord, forgive me again for running away from you. Help me, forgive me, Fill me afresh with your spirit to walk in new life that I have in you. Application number three, God's purposes in suffering. To restate that C.S. Lewis quote I had earlier, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Suffering comes to unbelievers, but also to believers who live through trumpets one through four. We have creation falling apart around us. We have governments and leaders doing wrong. Is your suffering a megaphone that rouses you, awakens you, helps you to run to Christ? And specifically, this passage helps us consider suffering when others oppose us, when their antagonism is for our faithful witness. And know this, Christian friend, that is a common story. That is a common story. Greg Beal says this, the pastoral purpose of this passage is to remind the readers that antagonism to their faithful witness will continue to the end of history. And that they should not be disheartened because it is part of God's plan which they can trust. Antagonism to your faithful witness is normal. That's why throughout Revelation we hear this, patiently endure, patiently endure, patiently endure, patiently endure. Friend, are we patiently enduring in the midst of opposition? In application number four, God answers prayer. Let's remember that these trumpets are an answer to the prayers of the saints. Beale says this as he speaks of the prayer in earlier in chapter 8, and then the trumpets, he says, it may be that your unanswered prayers are in one of those bowls. Get that. Just picture that. God is waiting until the time is right. And one day your prayers will be poured before the throne and will unleash the renewal of all things. When you pray for justice, the ultimate answer may be the final judgment. When you pray for peace, the ultimate answer may be the reign of the lamb. When you pray for healing, the ultimate answer may be the resurrected body. When you pray for joy, the ultimate answer may be the wedding feast of the lamb. The saints under the altar are praying how long and God answers. And the ultimate answer is glorious. Have any of you guys ever been to Wanamaker water park? There's this part of Wanamaker Water Park where it's like kind of the kids' part and it's like this playground thing and there's this big bucket on top. And the water just pours into this bucket. If you go over to the bucket and you're waiting for the bucket to be poured out on you, it feels like it takes three hours to fill. Like the water's pouring in and you're like, I thought this went faster. I think I've seen it like pour out within the last like few minutes. But like when you're under it, it's like hours. It's not really ours, but it feels that way. And so you see this water pouring into the top of it. And I always imagine that bucket of the prayers of the saints going into these bowls, going in. And there's this moment as you're sitting under that bucket where you start hearing the bell go off. It's da-ding, 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 da-ding. And the bucket starts to turn. Then all of a sudden there's this whoosh. Of the water, and it just drills you, almost knocks you down. Little kids are flying everywhere. <laughs> Friends, as we pray, it's the prayers going in the bucket. And it may feel like hours, it may feel like weeks, it may feel like months, it may feel like a lifetime. But there will be a day when it will be da ding, da ding, da ding the ding and these prayers will be answered. It will be a whoosh of the Lamb of God being fully known, being fully with his people and us with him, fully ruling and reigning and every wrong being punished on those who rebel against him. Brothers and sisters, God hears our prayers and we pray, come, Quickly, Lord Jesus. Friends, and for those of us in Christ, I think one of the things we've got to understand and help sober us when we read about the judgment of the seals and the judgment of the trumpets and the judgment of the bowls when we get to that. Friends, this, that judgment that you're hearing on unbelievers, in especially trumpets, five and six, that judgment is what you and I deserve. We deserve the plagues on us. We deserve them coming at us. Without the grace of God, we are locking in and getting hardened hearts. But that is the wrath that God poured out on the cross of Jesus Christ for you. Jesus absorbed the wrath, absorbed the torment, absorbed the sting and the satanic hatred. Jesus fully paid for all of our hardened rebellion. We're gonna end today by taking communion together, remembering what Jesus did in his death and resurrection on our behalf. We want to remember that like the Israelites in Egypt who lived in the midst of plagues and they had a Passover lamb to cover them, Jesus Christ is our perfect Passover lamb. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit in the midst of the seals and the trumpets in this age. And as we have studied Revelation and we think about Revelation in the midst of taking the Lord's Supper, The book of Revelation has three kind of main encounters or main visions of Jesus. And those visions of Jesus then point us to what we need to be thinking about Jesus in the next few chapters. So Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is that son of man. He's the king, and then he's walking among his churches. Then Revelation 2 and 3, what do we find? Jesus walking among his churches. Then Revelation 4 and 5, you see this lion of the tribe of Judah but he's the lamb who was slain. And so what what do you need to see in the following chapters in Revelation 6 through 18? You need to be aware of the line of Judah and the lamb who was slain. What we need to know as we're thinking about these trumpets, as we're thinking about these judgments, is this. Can you put the next slide on the screen? For humanity, Judgment is either taken by Jesus for us or given by Jesus to us. That's what this text shows. Judgment is either taken by Jesus, the lamb who was slain. Judgment is either taken by Jesus for us or given by Jesus. Who's opening the seal? Jesus. Who's telling the angels to do things? Jesus. Who's ruling and judging all rebellion against him as king? Jesus. Whose side are we on? If you're united to Christ, be reminded of the judgment taken by Jesus for you as you look at the bread representing his body broken for you. That's judgment taken for you. As, his, as you take the juice that represents his blood shed for you, taking that judgment for you. And friends, if you are not a believer, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, we ask that you refrain from partaking in the bread and the cup. We ask that instead of taking the bread and cup, that today you would take Christ by repenting of your sin, turning from your rebellion, turning to Jesus, the Lamb who died. Turn from any idolatry and confess Jesus as your Savior. And friends, if you you claim to be a believer, but you know your heart is hardened right now. You know you're walking... In known sin and unwilling to repent of it, we also ask you, do not participate. This is a time for you to repent. This is the, the church doing a gracious thing to you, saying, please repent. 1 Corinthians 11 says that if you don't partake in a, in a worthy manner, if you partake in an unworthy manner, there can be consequences. And we believe the scriptures are true. Please take this in a worthy manner. Let's be a repentant people. So when you're ready, please go to one of the five stations set. We've got one here, 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 and I think two in the back, maybe. And we're going to go and take the bread and cup and head back to your seat. Just take time to pray. And here's the thing. Take time to thank Jesus for taking the judgment that should be poured out on It is a gracious thing of what Jesus has done. This is a gracious reminder of what He's done. And Jesus, friends, is our King. He's done this for us. This is a loving thing. If you ever wonder, is God for me? Yes, He is. You can now go to the stations and hold your bread and cup until we take it together in a few minutes.